The text of this sermon is from the third chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 1. John 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, or kept on saying to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? I was working late one night in the office in another place, in another pastorate, and there came this timid knock at the door, and when I answered the knock, there stood a young man out in the hall, and he asked if he could come in and visit for a while. We sat down in my office, and we began to talk. It was the usual story of the shipwreck of somebody's life. He'd been drinking, he'd been involved in drugs, he'd lost his family. The shipwreck story of a young man's life. And I began to tell him of his need for Christ. I began to tell him that Jesus Christ could come into his life and make a difference, could change him and make things new. And I'll not forget the last thing he said as we ended our conversation that evening. With a look of faraway, wistful longing on his face, he said, I just wish it were possible. I just wish it were that easy. You know, I have seen that response in the eyes of people that I have counseled with personal problems. And I've heard that more than once in the cries of the people in our world. I just wish it were possible. For I suppose that each one of us at some time or another has had a longing to go back and start all over again. Kipling said it for us, Oh, for some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our heartaches and all of our mistakes and all of our selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never picked up again. To do as Omar Khayyam said, to smash the sorry scheme of things entire and begin anew. But you know, that just doesn't seem possible, does it? 
We've lived too long and there's been too much water under the bridge. Our thoughts and our habits and our lifestyles are just too congealed, just too fixed. And so change, especially change in human nature, seems beyond our grasp. Now that's what troubled this ruler of the Jews, this religious leader. It wasn't the desirability of the new birth that perplexed him. He certainly wanted the new birth. It was the possibility of it that seemed beyond reason for him. I want you to reconstruct that night in your mind, if you will. And he came to Jesus to say, Master, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one except God's man could do these things. Jesus' response is not the response that you and I would have made. I can just hear us. Oh, really? Do you really like me? Jesus uh, might, uh, could have said, Nicodemus, am I as popular in the country as I am in the town? But Jesus knew that Nicodemus was not there for him. He was there for Nicodemus. And so he got straight to the point and said, except a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And it rocked him back on his heels. For here was a man who had been accustomed to giving the answers. He was a walking encyclopedia of religious knowledge. He'd been giving the answers before, and now he was confronted with a question, with a problem he didn't have an answer for. And so he was raising the question, Jesus, how is it possible for a man to be born again? And I submit to you that that's the most frequently asked question in our world today. How can I go back and start all over? Now I know this morning that when I introduce this text, I've already turned some of you off. I've turned some of you off because you've saying in your mind, well listen, I've heard the third chapter of John and the new birth preached so many times by better preachers than him, he hasn't anything to say that I haven't already heard. And I've heard, I know I've turned some of you off who are thinking in your mind, well now this morning he's going to preach to the unsaved, to those who've never been born again, and I am religious. Why well, I've been a member of this church since I was a boy, but I want to remind you that Nicodemus was a religious authority and a leader of the religious thought but had not been born again. I submit to you first of all today that Nicodemus could have asked this question, how can this be, could have asked this question in one of three ways. Perhaps first, he asked the question cynically or fatalistically. Maybe he asked the question like this. You don't expect me to believe something that phenomenal, do you? Do you expect me to believe that a person can be born again? Are you telling me that you can take human personality that has been formed by adolescence and childhood in environment and training in home and school and society 
and you can just change that personality like you change the paper on the wall. Look at me, Jesus. Do I look like a man who would believe that? Are you expecting me, a man of my age and my intelligence and my training to believe that a person can be born again? Why, how can you expect me to believe that? Maybe Nicodemus was a first century fatalist. And a fatalist is a person who believes that everything that happens is the result of the innate nature of the thing itself and that all human responses are the inevitable decrees of the arbitrators of one's destiny that man is simply and solely a machine who will never change. Bertrand Russell once said, I don't believe in the freedom of the will. A man can no more change than the tree can change its branches. Maybe he was a first century fatalist, for fatalism is a popular viewpoint. I've heard it, haven't you? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. But we're not talking this morning about dogs, my friend. We're talking about human beings created in the image of God and it is possible for human personality to be radically, redemptively, revolutionarily, permanently changed. Why, the sciences of the mind are all built on the premise that you can take a human personality that's that's maladjusted and sick and with analysis and help and encouragement and guidance, you can change that personality 180 degrees. The sciences of the mind, psychiatry and psychology believe that a person's personality can be formed, deformed and reformed under certain stimuli that you can take the personality of a man that is moving like a stream in one direction and with certain stimuli and guidance, you can reverse the stream of that personality. Now, folks, if we believe that man in his finite power can accomplish that with man, why is it so difficult for us to believe that the infinite God can do that and a better job of it? Why, the miracle of the changed life is everywhere in the Scripture. Just take, for example, the people that Jesus called to be his disciples. There's Simon Peter, vacillating, cowardly Simon Peter, but so radically transformed by his association with Christ that he was willing to die for him and did. And there's one Saul who was once ravaging the flock of God like an angry wolf, so transformed by the presence of the living Christ that he died in a prison cell, sending letters out to further the cause of Jesus Christ, having carried a cross on his back across Asia Minor for years. Now, you may deny that that can happen to you or to your neighbor down the street, but to deny that it happened to them is to fly into the face of facts. Have you ever known a reprobate? 
I mean a real hard reprobate. I know some folks you call that, but I mean, do you know a real? I grew up in a little town that had a man who lived next to the schoolhouse. He had just, when I was a kid, he had just been sent back from prison. He'd been dismissed from prison. He'd spent several years there for the rape of a little girl. And we taunted that old man. I, I don't know if the reprobate was the man or, the us, or, or we kids, but we taunted him. We'd call him the little girl's name so we'd get him to chase us, and he would. And it was about 10 blocks from his house or the school ground downtown, and we'd just run as hard as we could, and he'd be right in behind us, and we'd run in some store and hide. It was just a game that we played. One time some men went from the church to visit him, and he ran them off. He was hard and, and cold, and he was a reprobate. But I can remember when I was a senior in high school sitting in a revival service one night and that man walked in and sat down. And it was one of those services where the power of God was just so evident and present and God came in a marvelous way and visited us, visited us in that service. And Marcel, that old man, was saved. I can remember how we looked at one another in sheer amazement and shock and how profoundly I was affected when I saw that man go forward to give his life to Jesus Christ. And I can remember the impact upon my life when I would see him come Sunday after Sunday and bring his friends and sit with them in the service and how profoundly I was impressed the first time I heard him hammer out his first prayer. Now you may be cynical about the power of God to change human nature. You may not believe that it's possible, but don't you deny that it happened to him. Or maybe Nicodemus asked the question inquiringly or scientifically. Maybe he had his little book with him, a chart, a piece of paper, the scroll or whatever. And with pencil in hand, he came to Jesus with this question. Jesus, I recognize that there is something unique about your life. And I have seen a uniqueness in your, heard a uniqueness in your teaching. You preach and teach like no other man. You must be somebody different. And I have seen the change in others around you and I want to know how it takes place. I want to know how it happens. I've had that kind of question asked inquiringly, scientifically. Now, let me get it down. I, like, a, like a scientist in a laboratory, I have certain facts that I know, certain data. Let me work from here and determine how it happens. What more is there? than just being born and baptized and joining a church. What more is there to it than just observing the faith of your father and mimicking that faith until you're old enough to express it yourself? What more is there than just being baptized and being a part of a church and liking the preacher and paying your tithe? Is there any more to it than that? I want to really know how it's possible to begin again. 
Well, he didn't have to look too far to find the answer. For right underneath them, as they stood on the top of this house, right underneath them were Peter and James and John. And he could have asked them, or he could have gone down to Magdala and found that woman named Mary whose body had been sold as her stock and trade to the highest bidder. Or he could have gone to Jericho and talked to Zacchaeus and he would have found the answer. Now listen, each one of these men in the life of Jesus would have told Nicodemus that they had discovered in Jesus Christ that God had invaded human needs and through Jesus Christ he had made available a power that would produce life change in them. Now, this thread of the new birth is found in the Scripture. Let me read this passage. Listen carefully. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You just went in like a stick on the stream. According to the prince of the power of the air, Satan was your master of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. He's saying that this is the description of every man born in this world. But, he says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Now what that says is that a man is born again by faith in the finished work of Christ and by that alone. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Man is saved by faith in the finished work of Christ. Now watch this. I was traveling one day from Seattle, from Spokane to Seattle when I was doing mission work in the Northwest. And it was during the time of the World's Fair, and so the flights were just jammed. And a lot of people got bumped. It was packed out. And I got on and got a seat, and I was sitting in the center of this seat about halfway back in the, in the coach section. And a guy came in and sat down on the aisle seat. Looked like Joe College. Boy, he was dressed up, Ivy League. Handsome young man. And after everybody else was on, a group of tourists from Japan, Japanese people, folks, got on in a group, about 30 of them. And they got on and they all moved to the back to take their seat at the back. And there was one seat left. It was the window seat on my left. And it was for the tour guide of this group, a young Japanese woman. She got on last, of course, the end of the tour group. They'd been to the World Fair, and they were going to Seattle and down to Los Angeles. When we sat there a little while, and they got ready to taxi around to take off, 
I was thinking to myself, here I am up in the northwest doing mission work, and there's a mission field sitting beside me. So I got out my little How to Have a Full and Meaningful Life track, and I started to bear witness to her about Jesus. And um, lo and behold, she told me that her, her father was Buddhist, her mother was dead, and that she was studying Christianity with a Baptist missionary in Tokyo. And I thought, well, how about this? And as I began to share with her out of the, how to have a fully meaningful life, the guy on my right joined in. Now, this is a true story. He was a Buddhist. As a matter of fact, he was the leader of the Shoshu Buddhist religion. It's a new concept of Buddhism. And he was on his way back from Japan to Seattle. He'd been over there and studying, etc. And he challenged me as we flew towards Seattle. He told me that what I was talking about was, was completely weird and, and unacceptable, and he began to share what it meant, what Buddhism meant. And he talked about the fact that you, through an intellectual process, you come to this final level up here, and you just kind of drift into nirvana, kind of a, a pseudo-gnosticism, a superior knowledge that you gain through discipline and study. And I was talking to her about how to receive Christ by faith and faith alone. We landed in Seattle. He got on off, took off. And I just sat there and waited for everybody to go. She was going to be the last one I knew. And she turned over to me and she, she was embarrassed that he challenged me. And she said, um, I just want you to know, Pastor, that I don't believe like he said. She, she said, that's not even Buddhism. But she said, I want you to know that I'm going to keep on searching for the truth. And I turned to that passage that I read last Sunday, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And I reminded her that that word truth there is in the masculine, and it refers to Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth. And with all of the grace and urgency I could muster, I said to her, young lady, why don't you just give your heart to Jesus Christ and he'll set you free? For the way one is born again is not by learning more about him until we gain this superior knowledge of him. The way one is born again is not by adding a few virtues to his life or subtracting a few sins or multiplying a few efforts. The way one is born again is by trusting Jesus alone for his salvation. Now, I want to hurry to finish. Maybe Nicodemus asked the question hungrily or thirstily. Somebody said that the reason why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night was that he saw him for the first time that day and it set up such a fire in him he couldn't wait until the next day to see him. I don't know whether that's really accurate or not, it's as good as the other theories, but I do know this, that wherever Jesus went as he walked among men, he created in them a thirst and a hunger for him. Pascal was right when he said, God has formed in us a God-formed vacuum that only God can fill. Charles Howard was in a hotel doing evangelistic work, this great old preacher. 
He said he was getting, got in the elevator and started up to his room on the 13th floor or 14th. And he said there was an old drunk in the elevator. And, and the old drunk staggered over to where he was and said, Sir, can you tell me where I can get a drink? And Charles Howard said, I thought of that pitcher of water in my room. And I said, yeah, in my room. He said, he, the old drunk thought he had a friend, found a friend. So he kind of put his arm around him, you know, and just hugging him up, you know, he'd found a buddy. And Charles Howard reached into his, into his pocket and pulled out a New Testament and turned to the fourth chapter of the book of John and put it right under his nose and said, if you'll come to my room, I'll show you where you can find living water. And he said the old drunk got mad and spit on him, spit right in his face. About that time, the elevator stopped on the 11th floor. The drunk staggered off, cursing Charles Howard. The elevator door stopped, closed. Charles Howard reached in his pocket to pull out his handkerchief, not to wipe the dirty spittle off his face, but to wipe the tear out of his eye. Not even conscious that there was anybody else on the elevator until the Negro elevator operator tapped him on the shoulder. And when he turned around, he said, I saw hunger in her face as big as my hand. And she said, Sir, can you tell me where I can find living water? I've seen that hunger in the faces of people. I've seen it here today. I've seen it in the faces of little children whose parents will bring them into my office and they'll say, Pastor, my little boy wants to become a Christian. And I can see them kind of cloud up and their thirst for living water. There's an old Dutch fable that says there were three bugs in the bottom of a bin. One was named No, one was named Maybe, the other was named Yes. One day they were talking about destiny and No said, I don't believe there's any greater destiny for us than this. And so No just rolled over to the edge of the bin and died. Maybe said, I've heard that there is a higher destiny in life than this, and I'm going to try my best to reach it. And so he struggled and struggled and squeezed himself, but nothing happened. Yes, said, I know there's a higher destiny. I know that somewhere, somehow, there's a hand that will reach down and take me and place me in the earth, and I'll bloom to my final destiny. And one day a hand was reached down into the bin, and yes, moved over, placed itself in the hand, the hand took the bulb, put it in the warm earth, and when the spring's rain came, that bulb bloomed to its destiny. This story that I'm through. I was preaching revival in Roseburg, Oregon, the same church where our young people are going this summer. Listen to this. We started on Monday night. We had packed a pew night up there. You say packed a pew, they take it seriously, and they had a pack, and they had some folks brought some people that had never been to church before. There was a couple there. They'd not been to church before. Agnostic. While I preached, they made fun of me. They laughed at me. They thought, who is this wild preacher from Texas? Okay. After the service, instead of being embarrassed by them, I went straight to them. I said, come on downstairs. We're going to have some cake and ice cream. I want to visit with you. I want to get to know you. We went down to Fellowship Hall, and I talked to Jeff and Martin. I told them, I said, now, tomorrow night, we want you to come back. And I said, we won't be back. I said, yeah, I think you will. You'll be back. They came back on, my, on Tuesday night. They didn't make fun. They came back on Wednesday night, and they asked some of us, uh, some, some people asked to go to a home for some fellowship after church. 
and they asked me to go with them. And sitting around in a little dialogue session, most dynamic thing I've ever been a part of, Margaret looked at me and said, and she was serious, I could believe in Santa Claus before I could believe in God. Thursday night, they came back and brought a friend who was unsaved. This, this will blow your mind. After the service, they came up to me and said, our friend is coming over to our house after the service. Would you come over and tell her how to become a Christian? I went over to their house, sat around the table, led their friend to the Lord. They were rejoicing, crying. Saturday night, Jeff walked the aisle to give his life to Jesus Christ. After the service, Margaret said to me, Gerald, we've become fast friends. She said, I'd give anything in the world if I could believe it. I took them out for dinner that night. We went to a steakhouse. We ate dinner. After the, that, we sat in the car and talked till about 3 o'clock in the morning. Sunday morning, I preached this sermon on the new birth, told the illustration about tulip bulbs. When the invitation was given, Margaret came forward and said, Nobody's ever called me a tulip bulb before, but I'm coming today to say yes and place my life upon God. That night at the end of the service, I was getting ready to leave, fly back to Texas. She came up to me with a paper sack. She said, girl, I want you to take this sack home. It's my gift to you. I don't want you to open it till you get home. Then I want you to open it. I want it to be a surprise. When I got home, opened up the paper sack. You're way ahead of me. You know what was in it? There's a tulip bulb. And I took that tulip bulb and I put it in my garden. And when the spring rains came and the sun, it began to blossom into its fullest potential. And I thought of what God did in Margaret's life. Now there's some of you here this morning who are knows you're saying you can't be cynical and fatalistic. And there's some of you who are saying maybe it can be. I'd like to know how maybe it can be. And there's some of you, maybe you gentlemen, who are hearing the gospel for the first time, who are saying, yes, I believe there is a higher destiny. I believe that God is God, and I'm coming to give my heart and life to him. Now listen to me carefully. I've not preached too many evangelistic services here, but this is one. And I've been a burden, I've had a burden these last few weeks about those of us who come on Sunday morning and sit under the sermon who have never been born again. I want you to come this morning. I want you to do it right now where you sit. I want you to pray and invite Jesus Christ into your life. I want you to say yes to him. I want you to place your faith upon him right now to be saved. doesn't matter if you're religious or a member of the church. Have you ever transferred your trust over to Jesus Christ? Would you do it now? And after we've had our prayer, we'll give an invitation. And we'll invite you to come forward publicly because Jesus always invited his disciples to follow him publicly. And all you have to do, listen carefully, is to step out in a heart and an attitude and response of faith to say this morning, I'm going to begin following Jesus today. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment now, your spirit will open our eyes to the truth about ourselves and about thee. 
and that there will be positive response today. I pray for those of us outside of Jesus Christ that we might turn everything away but our trust upon him. And I pray for those of us who need to rededicate ourselves. We've been born again, but we need a new beginning. And for those who need to place their life here, a statement, a promise of letter. Guide them, Father, to do your will, I pray in Jesus' name. Now, in the spirit of prayer, would you stand? Would you come?